Welcome, and thank you for joining us for today's CME podcast. PrimeMed podcasts are dedicated to providing on-the-go clinicians with pertinent, evidence-based primary care content that won't take too much time out of your busy schedule. Information about CME credits and faculty for today's podcast can be found within this activity's landing page on primemed.com slash podcast. That's pri-med.com slash podcasts. Be sure to also go to this location in order to claim your CME credits after the program. Thank you and enjoy. Good morning, Dr. Chopra. And welcome to Coffee with Chopra. Thank you. Delighted to be here. Thank you for uh, inviting me. Absolutely. Uh, Honored to have you on this uh, segment. I'm going to ask you a couple of questions and uh, sort of a free-for-all discussion, the way we might do if we were in the doctor's lounge or running a CME event in America or Singapore or Kuwait or Santa Fe or wherever. Sure. So for the audience, I want to introduce, I think many of you have, have had the pleasure of hearing Dr. Martin Abrams speak at events around the country. Uh, for those of you who do not know him, he's an associate professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. He and I have the privilege of directing the Division of Continuing Medical Education at the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. He has held leadership positions at Jocelyn Diabetes Center. He is a consummate clinician, a masterful teacher, educator, a beloved teacher by students, house staff, fellows, and uh, attendees at our courses. In 2010, he received the Samuel Eichold Award for contributions to diabetes by the American College of Physicians. And every year he's rated in the top doctors in Boston. So I'm delighted to welcome you, Martin. Thank you, Sanjeev. Nice to be here and uh, great to be able to talk about a topic that's dear to my heart. Wonderful. So if you had to reflect on the major advances in the treatment of type two diabetes in the last decade or so, what comes to mind? Yeah, I mean, I think that probably the most significant advances have been the development of new classes of medications to treat people with type 2 diabetes. And I say that because for many years, there was a relative hiatus in the availability of medications to treat people with diabetes, especially type 2. We had sulfonylureas, then metformin came on board. Then there were a few other medications that did come, uh, thiazolidinediones, they didn't live up to the promise um, and the expectations that people thought they had. Um, there were drugs that delayed the absorption of carbohydrate from the gastrointestinal tract, which in some countries of the world have proved quite popular, but not so much in the United States. And then there were two major classes that were developed. The first were the GLP-1 receptor agonists, and the second were the SGLT2 inhibitors. They each work completely differently and through different mechanisms. The GLP-1 receptor agonists are a fascinating group of drugs because they are really based on a physiologic understanding of factors that contribute to the secretion of insulin when food enters the stomach. And we know from work by people like Dan Drucker and others that 
the these um, peptide hormones are secreted from the intestinal tract when food enters the stomach and they augment insulin secretion in a glucose dependent manner. These were discovered in the 80s and the problem was that they have such a short half-life that they couldn't be used clinically for any for, because of that. Then comes along a particular endocrinologist who's very interested in um, uh, studying physiology and he um, worked at the Bronx in the VA, Dr. Eng, and he was working on um, a particular kind of lizard called the Gila monster. And he discovered that in the saliva of the Gila monster, there is a peptide hormone that is very similar in structure to these peptide hormones that are secreted or to one of these peptide hormones that are secreted from the stomach, uh, from the intestine when food enters the stomach in humans. Um, GLP-1 glucagon-like peptide is the name of that hormone. And he discovered a peptide which he called Exendin-4, which has very similar structure to GLP-1, but resists proteolytic degradation. And uh, as a consequence of that, a substance called exenatide was developed. And that was the first of the GLP-1 receptor agonists to come to market over 10 years ago now. Since that time, um, these drugs have evolved and we now have GLP-1 receptor agonists that can actually be given once a week. They have given, those are given by injection. And last year, the FDA approved the first oral formulation of a GLP-1 receptor agonist, which has the same um, e efficacy as the subcutaneously administered drug. Now, these drugs work in a variety of ways. They augment insulin secretion in a glucose-dependent manner. They suppress glucagon, and glucagon is elevated in people with type 2 diabetes. They slow gastric emptying, and they also have a central effect in the brain to affect satiety. And they actually can be associated with quite significant weight loss, which leads me to another advance, because for many years, when you had drugs like sulfonylureas and insulin, they caused weight gain. And many of our patients would say, you want me to lose weight, and then you prescribe me drugs that cause weight gain. What's up with that? Now we have a class of medications that can be used that cause weight loss. And then there's one, I, th I think, um, really important, significant advance in these medications in that they actually have cardiovascular benefit. And I'll talk about the SGLT2 inhibitors in a minute. But the, we go back a little bit in time because in 2009, there was a publication in the New England Journal of Medicine that suggested, based on a meta-analysis, that a thiazolidinedione drug called rosiglitazone increased risk for myocardial infarction. And it subsequently turned out that that hasn't been proven. But because of that discovery or because of that analysis, the FDA then mandated that any new drug that it would approve for use in people with diabetes had to at least be safe from a cardiovascular point of view. And so all new classes of drugs being developed for diabetes have to undergo rigorous cardiovascular outcomes trials. These, these trials are not done to show the glucose lowering efficacy of the drug, but rather done to show that these drugs do not adversely affect cardiovascular outcomes. And the major cardiovascular outcomes that are measured as agreed to with the FDA are a composite of three major events, 
myocardial infarction, stroke, or death from cardiovascular disease, which we call collectively major adverse cardiovascular events. The GLP-1 receptor agonists, a few of these of drugs in these class have now been shown to improve major adverse cardiovascular events. In other words, to reduce the risk for the development of a major adverse cardiovascular event. Initially done in studies, the studies were done in people who had cardiovascular disease. Now there's been one particular study that's been done in people who are at high risk for cardiovascular disease demonstrating cardiovascular benefit. So it turns out that a few of the drugs in these, this class have now been approved for reducing cardiovascular risk. In a few cases, in a few drugs, it's for people with established cardiovascular disease. In one particular drug, it's primary prevention of cardiovascular disease. So we have drugs now that lower glucose, cause weight loss, have cardiovascular benefit, and in addition to that, when these drugs are used alone or in, even in combination with metformin, they do not cause hypoglycemia because the way they augment insulin secretion is in a glucose-dependent manner. So that's another added benefit of these drugs. That's pretty now, amazing. Any, really any significant side effects? So the major side effect is a GI one. It's nausea. Um, and it's primarily because these drugs, low gastric emptying, that um, if you distend the stomach for a long period of time, you can actually elicit a vagal stimulus and that can cause nausea. Uh, nausea occurs in about 10% of people, but if you start the drug at a low dose, which is the recommendation, and you build the dose up slowly, the nausea generally gets better with time. I also tell my patients to reduce the risk of nausea, don't eat big meals and don't have fatty foods, and that seems to help as well. There's no evidence that these drugs increase risk for pancreatitis, although they are contraindicated in people who have had pancreatitis for no known reason. And there's also a contraindication in people who have a history of medullary carcinoma of the thyroid or a family history of medullary carcinoma of the thyroid. That's a very rare thyroid cancer. Um, and the reason for that is because in rat studies, um, these drugs caused C-cell hyperplasia because it turns out that the C cells of the thyroid in rats contain receptors for GLP-1, but human C cells do not. So it's not really a major issue. Terrific, Martin. You know, there's an ancient saying, let food be thy medicine. Can you comment on the diets? There's such a plethora of diets. And uh, not only is the layperson confused, I think the average physician is confused. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What is the best diet? Is there really a best diet for every patient with diabetes or do you individualize? And what do you and the nutritionists you're working with tell your patients with type 2 diabetes? So this, this has evolved over years as well. Um, and I'll say a little bit about diets, but I do want to come back to the SGLT2 inhibitors because we need to talk about them. You know, many years ago, uh, it was thought that about 50% of the of the of the calories in one's diet should be carbohydrates, and over time we've come to realize that that's not necessarily the case. And in fact, lower carbohydrate is better. But we've also come to realize, and the American Diabetes Association has now even stated this in its nutrition guidelines, that there isn't one specific diet that works for everybody. Now we've seen. 
a lot of dietary suggestions made by a lot of organizations. Um, they range from low carb diet or keto diets to diets that are low fat but contain more carbohydrate to a combination or, or variations of these. I would say that in a nutshell, the most important thing when talking to a person with diabetes who wants to discuss diet is to really find out what they're eating and what modifications they are capable of making to improve glucose control. And that would imply reducing carbohydrates usually and also probably reducing calories as well. And um, we use a technique called motivational interviewing to help people or to help clinicians reach out to patients and engage patients in some dietary modifications that they can adhere to. Because the biggest challenge with diets, as we all know, is that you can preach to people what they should eat, but they don't necessarily follow it. And uh, the most important thing is finding out what is a person capable of achieving and uh, encouraging them to achieve their goals and then working with them to further improve dietary modifications. If you have to talk about a particular diet as such, I think most of the scientific evidence has come from studies with Mediterranean diets. These are the diets used in parts of Europe, in the Mediterranean, that really promote the use of um, uh, in, uh, low glycemic index carbohydrates, in other words, carbohydrates that contain a lot of fiber are more natural, some fruits and vegetables, um, proteins in the form of fish uh, and fats in the form of polyunsaturated or monounsaturated fats, which are included in things like salmon and sardines and so on. So fish and chicken, little red meat, high fiber carbohydrates, those are the important things that people should be thinking about when in terms of macronutrients uh, for their diet. Yeah, thank you. I, I believe I saw a study in the last six or eight months that addressed Mediterranean diet in people in our country, because one of the concerns or qualifications, caveats was, well, the Mediterranean diet works there. Is there something special about that area? Do they get more vitamin D? Is there something about their lifestyle? So it was reassuring to see that it also works very well in this country. There's also a study showing that individuals on a Mediterranean diet have increased telomere length, which is related to longevity. So Correct. it's a diet that's well tolerated. It's pretty tasty with the fish and fruit and olive oil and uh, all, of, all of that. Uh, a comment about intermittent fasting. There's a lot of buzz about it. Yeah, there's um, there's a buzz about the fact that if you if you don't eat for say 16 hours of the day, or if uh, on two days of the week you cut your caloric intake into um, into sort of 500 calories, almost like a full fast, and, and you, on other days of the week you're more liberal with your diet, it uh, things things seem to work. I don't think there's a lot of scientific evidence that intermittent fasting has a major advantage. But once again, if you don't eat for 16 hours of the day, and if your food is consumed during the other eight hours, you generally would tend to eat a little less because you might have two meals instead of three. And some people who can adhere to this generally find that they have lost weight. But once again, 
it's not a one size fits all. If this works for the individual and they're able to lose weight, if weight loss is a goal of therapy, then that's a great way of doing it. But I don't necessarily believe that an intermittent fasting approach is uh, any better than, say, a Mediterranean diet or just cutting out calories. Back to the Mediterranean diet, the scientific evidence, again, has shown that these diets may reduce risk of cardiovascular disease. They may actually reduce the risk for the development of diabetes as well. So there is evidence that Mediterranean diet um, uh, has some benefits, and certainly it's a diet that's been more scientifically studied than many others. Terrific. Let's flip the coin completely and talk about bariatric surgery. What is its role in reversing diabetes, causing diabetes to go into remission? Mm -hmm. Are people able to come off their meds? So we talk, we talk first of all, about reversing um, remission of diabetes rather than reversal of diabetes, because we know that the one big factor that leads to reversal or improve reversal of diabetes, which could mean coming off all medications, is weight loss. And medical approaches to weight loss generally are not quite as effective as surgical approaches to weight loss. But if somebody can lose a lot of weight medically through a diet, they can also reverse their diabetes or go into remission, should I say. The, the advantage of bariatric surgery is that if you look at the outcome data from bariatric surgery, uh, people who have undergone bariatric surgery, for the most part, they have a greater chance of um, remission of diabetes because there is more significant weight loss with surgical approaches to weight loss as i.e. metabolic surgery or bariatric surgery than with medical approaches. And there are a lot of long-term outcome data studies showing that bariatric surgery is associated with greater chances of remission of diabetes, reduction of medications, significant reduction of medications. Many people come off insulin. Many people may be, may be able even to stop other medications that they take for their diabetes improvement of other comorbidities like hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and in actual fact, reduction in mortality. And this is not only applicable to people with diabetes, but more so even applicable to people who have um, obesity without necessarily having diabetes. Terrific. And there's different types of bariatric surgery, which you and I know about. Um, I generally will not make a specific recommendation about the type of bariatric surgery to a patient who's in, interested in undergoing the procedure. I rather leave it to the bariatric surgeons to discuss the various approaches. And now we know today that there are uh, less invasive approaches to what we call metabolic surgery that have been um, studied and are continuing to be studied. The results are, early, are much less um, less less. There are not as many results available as there are, say, with the typical Roux-en-Y gastric bypass approach. But we look to the future to see the outcome data of these interventions. Yeah, and some of these are endoscopic techniques. Correct. Yeah. I mean, there's even there's there's even uh, an approach to without even with endoscopy, some people just swallow a little balloon that gets inflated when it enters the stomach. And this intragastric balloon then self-dissolves after a period of time. But while it's in the stomach, it actually reduces and it, it, it facilitates reduction in caloric intake. That's what it basically does because the stomach feels distended all the time. Uh, there's also 
um, uh, another intervention endoscopically where they uh, cauterize or laser part of the duodenum and they have shown um, very early studies that this approach also leads to weight loss and improvement in um, glycemic control in people with diabetes. Terrific. Comment uh, for a couple of minutes on continuous glucose monitoring. Yeah, this is a big game changer. Um, so for many years, people had to rely on finger stick glucose testing. And now we have uh, glucose sensors that are um, inserted in the interstitial fluid and they stay on the body for 10 days, 14 days. There are even some glucose, uh, uh, one particular type of glucose sensor that can actually be inserted uh, through a little incision and stays in the subcutaneous space for up to three months. Uh, and these, these sensors measure um, interstitial glucose fluid and they are correlate very well with finger stick glucose to the extent now that the newest glucose sensors do not even need to have a finger stick glucose test done to calibrate the sensor. And there's two kinds of uh, sensors. There's one that measures glucose continuously every five minutes. It can give you a recording and you can have it on your iPhone or your Android or your Apple Watch and you can see all the time what your glucose is. That's called continuous glucose monitoring. And then there's another kind of sensor called a flash glucose monitor, which requires either an app on your phone uh, or a special reader to be brought up to the sensor and then it gives you the glucose reading. These things have changed, um, changed the lives of people with diabetes dramatically, particularly people with type 1 diabetes, because they now know they can continuously see what their glucose readings are. Uh, and they can make modifications to their insulin regimen much more um, scientifically than they could in their past. But what's more important, in fact, is the fact that now there are uh, continuous glucose infusion pumps in, um, in, in that can, via Bluetooth technology, connect to the CGM. And these pumps now have software embedded in them that enable them to automatically either increase or decrease the basal rate of insulin infusion based on the ambient glucose concentration. So this is what we call a hybrid closed loop system. It's more appropriate for, the, for people with type 1 diabetes, but has been used and is used in people with type 2 diabetes who require multiple shots of insulin. And so the insulin infusion pump and the CGM Together, they're inserted separately, but they connect to each other through Bluetooth technology. And the infusion pump is able to adjust the infusion of basal insulin based on the ambient glucose concentration. The user still has to give boluses of insulin to cover meals and so on. But these, these pumps, uh, what we call hybrid closed loop pumps, have actually been shown to reduce rates of hypoglycemia and improve A1C in people with type 1 diabetes. So it's a huge advance technologically for people. And then in the age of telemedicine, as we well know now, um, much of this data can be accessed by the patient's physician through the cloud. So I can sit in my office or in my at my computer and I can have a teleconference with my patient just as we're doing now. And I can pull up their glucose readings their continuous glucose monitoring data, and I can share with them through the screen 
the the information and we can look at it together and we can figure out what modifications they need to make to the insulin to improve glucose control. And we now look at a new measurement instead of just A1C, we look at a measurement called time in range. And the time in range is the percentage of glucose readings that range between the standard is 70 and 180 milligrams per deciliter. And we can, uh, the, 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 the ideal is somewhere in the 70 to 80% range for the majority of people should be in that range. But um, there are situ situations where we want a higher percentage in range and situations where a lower percentage in range might be acceptable. But more importantly, we can look at how many times they are going low and because many people have asymptomatic hypoglycemia and we can adjust the dose of insulin based on this information. Wonderful. I'm going to tell a very brief story and then ask you a question and ask you to make a comment. And the story is that of Dr. Hans Popper. So he escaped persecution and came to this country. He was the most brilliant liver pathologist and worked in Chicago and then rose to be the president of Mount Sinai in New York. And several decades ago, we were privileged to have him as a visiting professor to the Longwood Medical Area in Boston. And I asked him the question one, one day at dinner. I said, Dr. Popper, what an amazing career you've had. What a distinguished career. He was the founding member together with Dame Sheila Sherlock and a few other people of the American Association for the Study of Liver Diseases back in the 50s. And he said, Sanjeev, uh, <clears throat> you know, every night when I put my head on the pillow, I ask myself a question. What's the one new thing you learned in hepatology or liver pathology today? And he says, more than four decades, I could answer that question, either something brand new or a nuance. He said, there's no other profession like that. And if I could go into a career again at a young age, I would choose the same career. I would choose America and I would be a liver pathologist. So we are privileged in our profession to be learning. I'm sure a lot of the attendees learned a lot from the wisdom you imparted today. We learn from podcasts like this. We learn from CME conferences. We learn from medical journals. We learn from our colleagues, we learn from the nurses, the pharmacists, the social workers, but we also learn from our patients. And you have an amazing story that you've shared with me and with others about a patient who got diagnosed at the age of six with type one eight, diabetes. Eight. eight. Or nine. Yeah. yeah. So tell that story and how her life has inspired so many. She's an amazing woman. She was an amazing woman. And um, you're absolutely right. Patients, if we cannot learn from patients and how they sometimes accept adversity and overcome adversity, how they overcome their challenges, what they do to um, improve their, their life in general, then I think that we as physicians are um, denying ourselves of a huge opportunity. But this is a particular woman who I met when she was around about 75 years of age and she was my patient for the next 15 or so years until she passed away earlier this year uh, at the age of 90 years and six months having had type 1 diabetes for 82 years she was diagnosed in 1937 and she told a story she's told the story at the american diabetes association she's told she told her story at our cme meeting uh, which we run every december for hundreds of physicians from all over the country and from many countries abroad, how she was diagnosed, 
her formative years as a child, how she was protected by her mother, not allowed to go out, how her mother weighed and measured her food, how her mother gave her insulin injections with these large bore needles that had to be sterilized and boiled, how the only way she could monitor her glycemic control was by uh, boiling her urine and adding a uh, what we call Benedict's solution to it and looking at the color change and how over the years she embraced all of the new advances in insulins, in monitoring techniques, in even in CGM at the end of her life, she was using CGM, how she took advantage of all of these technologies to maintain her discipline and control, how she married um, after going to college um, initially, she wasn't even allowed to go sleep out at college. Her parents insisted that she stay home, but eventually she boarded. She met her husband and then her life changed dramatically because he had to travel for work and she traveled all over the country. She traveled all over the world. She told stories about how uh, she discovered she was pregnant while in Europe um, and what happened to her and how she was told that she would never have be able to become pregnant. And in the end, she had three healthy children. She told a story about how she met Priscilla White, who was the the grandmother of diabetes in pregnancy and discovered how important good control is before and during pregnancy. She developed other things like celiac disease and had to go on a gluten free diet. She had osteoporosis and she broke bones when she was traveling and she told stories how she had to travel in cars with broken legs um, with a broken leg uh, back to the back to her home in Boston. Um, and she never gave up. That was the important thing. One of the most important lessons she told us is that she says, I never gave up. Not only did she never give up, she took up curling and maintained an active exercise program and eventually was on the national United States team for curling. Wow. She used to go dancing on a regular basis. Uh, she was the I would say she embraced all of the things that we tell patients or we encourage patients to do. Exercise regularly, watch the food that you are eating, measure your sugar, your glucose regularly. She did it all. Um, and until the last six months, the last few months of her life, she, she, she deteriorated dramatically. But not once did I ever see her sad or upset or, or, complaining about her her plight yeah you calculated she took how many thousand injections oh, of insulin 120,000 down for you uh, well over a hundred thousand injections and for over a hundred thousand times what an inspiration what an inspiration a major uh, she is an inspiration a true inspiration and she came and you interviewed her at our update internal medicine course i recall uh, she got a standing ovation from 500 people from 45 countries. Yeah, yeah, and, and that was that was, and, and then people came up to us, as you recall, right. and said that was an amazing story. How could they? They wanted to capture it and take it back and and show it to their patients. Yeah. So listen, thank you very much. I'm very grateful for you coming on board and sharing your wisdom and your experience. And I'll see you shortly. Maybe we'll sit in our cars six eight feet apart and sit we'll just have some coffee yeah, yeah thank you so much for the opportunity okay. just one quick thing i didn't sure. talk about the sglt2 inhibitors and i think for for fairness i should say these are drugs that block the absorption of glucose 
um, from the kidney and cause glycosuria, and that how that's how they lower glucose. But they also have been shown to have uh, cardiovascular benefit. They also cause some weight loss, and they're also big game changers in the field of diabetes for people, especially with type 2. So thank you very much. We thank you again for joining PrimeMed for today's podcast. Remember to claim your CME credits for the program on this activity's landing page on primed.com slash podcast. That's pri-med.com slash podcasts. Also, be sure to check out all of our other podcasts and primary care activities on primed.com as well. See you next time.